Hello and welcome to An Atheist Reads, the big book of AA. I'm your host, Josh. I appreciate you joining me as I explore new ways of making recovery more accessible to folks that may struggle with the God aspect of some recovery programs. All are welcome here. The primary purpose of this podcast is to read from the big book through the eyes of an atheist and try to make sense of all the God stuff that's in there. Along the way, I hope to hear and share the stories of others while learning other ways of keeping sober. Hopefully, this results in others learning as well. Today's episode is going to cover the chapter How It Works in the Big Book. I actually enjoy this chapter, even though I think there might be a little bit of controversy as far as, like, I guess some of the wording that's that's used in it. Uh, I honestly think a lot of that just comes from the fact that it's something that's always read at the beginning of most meetings, I'd say 99% of meetings that are, you know, non-secular or focus more of their attention on the spiritual and religious side, you know, traditional meetings, 99% of them are going to read from this. It's like the first few pages. And I know as as far as secular folks go, atheists, agnostics, um, you know, non-believers, free thinkers, whatever you, you want to identify with or not identify with, it gets kind of old hearing it, but it also just kind of... I don't know, I guess some folks just feel like maybe it's just driving home that you're about to enter a realm that maybe you're not as comfortable in or as welcomed in as as one would like to be. For me, it's kind of a take it or leave it. Like I just, you know, the ritual of some of these meetings has been important for a lot of people. And I know some folks find that part to be the culty part, that there's these readings and there's these rituals that you go through. But there's there is a reason why, you know, some beliefs have mantras and the reason why so many things of structure have these kinds of rituals. I mean, even going if you have a job that has a union component to it, your your union meetings are going to have these rituals. Meetings at work are going to have these rituals. Schools had these rituals. And I don't know if this is just indicative of the fact that we've always kind of been raised around the idea of these rituals, or if as humans, we find solace in them. There's a famili- familiarity in, in having these kinds of regularities in the meetings or anything that's a collective, you know, even, even singularly you having a ritual in the morning is is has been shown to just have benefits and maybe that's anecdotal because of of my own experiences with that but it seems like all the self-help books i've read all sort of indicate starting your day out with some kind of a ritual like i read the daily stoic that is a part of how i start my day and when i don't do that my day is kind of off and it's thrown a little askew and things kind of get out of whack and the same kind of happens with a meeting you know i think if you were to just start the meeting i I don't know if there'd be like a lack of legitimacy or if it would just be hard to focus in you know i don't know but however this all came about specifically for aa most meetings do require this kind of reading and as a newcomer, it could be kind of daunting to hear this stuff. I found a little bit of comfort in it because sometimes it was just the only, that was the only way I could be of service was just to read the thing. Like that's it. It's all the energy I had for other people. It was comforting to know that I could at least offer that, even if I didn't necessarily believe all the words in it. Because service is important. I mean, service is, like I said, the cornerstone of my recovery. Like I know when I'm in in active and effective recovery because I am of service to others and I don't seek some kind of redemption arc from having been of service. I mean, that's how the program works is being of service. 
I think it's important that there are these kinds of tasks. Ritual aside, let's say the ritual aspect was completely left out. Having these little tasks and being able to offer that for people that do want to be of service, but again, don't have maybe the energy or are scared. Having commitments or incapable of even locking down that bit of their mind. You know, people come in at all levels of, of scattered, disaffected, and broken when they when they enter the rooms so having at least this as an option to be of service i think is important you know i went from this to then making coffee and that was my job like i took that on that was my commitment that i was able to 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 hold down one day a week i knew i was going to be at this meeting because i knew i was going to i took it seriously i was going to make this coffee i was going to be on time and it was a way to prove to myself that I was taking this seriously. I also didn't want to let down people that were coming to the meeting. It made me a regular face. It made me a part of things. Now I was a part of the community. So the reason why I guess I'm even leading into this, and I guess this has become kind of part of my ritual, is uh, is speaking a little bit before I get to the reading that leads into the main body of the book. I just recently asked somebody to be my sponsor. Now I had I had a sponsor for the majority of the two and a half years that I was sober. But unfortunately my sponsors it just sometimes it just doesn't work out. Could be for any reason. I'm not gonna go into the reasons why right now because as open as I am of my story, I'm not really uh sure that I should share others. So the best way to say is amicably I am in was in need of a, a sponsor. And when you When you come into this kind of a program like AA, where there is this sort of sponsorship, mentorship component, and I know that's kind of a a part of the program that some people don't like, I prefer. I have a hard time bonding with people. I have a hard, I have a hard time bonding with men. And I am of, of the type, I think it's important that you choose what's comfortable for you. I know men who have been sponsored by women and I know, you know, vice versa. And now typically, traditionally, the reason why sponsor, sponsee is men sponsoring men and women sponsoring women is quite honestly folks get horny and weird you know what i mean just in general so it's best to just kind of separate that option out as much as possible obviously if you're gender neutral or you identify in different you know lgbtq aspects change that as far as like gender representation goes i would still suggest that you choose somebody of a sex that you're not attracted to if that's possible if not choose what's comfortable for me specifically the reason why i prefer to choose a same-sex male that i'm not attracted to is because one i don't want that kind of distraction because i build unhealthy attachments to people that i share my story to at times Uh, but two that's where i have the most difficulty in creating bonds is with you know men that i'm not attracted like just that's just where my my requirements are You know, I just want to be able to work on those bonds. The best way to do that is through being sponsored by another man. That's what works for me. Now, traditional AA is very, very strict. They're very, um, you know, they're old school. That's why there are LGBTQ meetings is because there's just not a lot of representation for the different lifestyles and practices out there. So when I say that I'm, you know, I get sponsored by men because of this, it's just my preference I think if you're going to have a reasonable experience in recovery, then you yourself should choose what you're 
you're actually comfortable with. That for me means I don't choose a woman specifically because there's a very good possibility that I could end up finding myself, you know, trauma bonding with that person and becoming attracted to them in an unhealthy way. And that's not the kind of relationship I want to have with my sponsor. And it's not the kind of relationship I would want to have with a sponsee. That's why I would choose men. Just, you know, the bottom line of how my my lifestyle has been. I'm not saying that I'm in an unhealthy place and that that's what would happen if I had a female sponsor. Uh, But should my life decline for some reason, maybe I stop working the steps, some tragic event happens and I backslide mentally and emotionally. And that's where I end up then suddenly creating this trauma bond. I don't, I don't just, I don't even want to deal with that. So first step, I think for anybody deciding that they want to have a sponsor is to really consider that aspect of it. Something that used to be a requirement for me was that they at least be able to identify with my, my life in some way. I guess when I first came into the program, I didn't want to have a sponsor that had a rough college time and maybe made a few mistakes and then quit drinking. Not after I've been to prison and I was raised by drug addicts and, you know, etc. When I, when I got sober this time, I just asked the first person who had what I felt I wanted. And it just so happened to that person also was able to identify with a lot of my life experiences. And so we were able to kind of bond over that, which I think helped. It really did. And I think that for me, that was, that was what I needed at the time. That should be of remain sponsor and sponsor I would have been perfectly fine with that because of those experiences because I knew that I could I could freely talk about stuff and even though this person had never been to prison it was there was no shock value there when I talked about it it was of interest we we could discuss the kind of inner workings of my brain revolving around that kind of stuff and it didn't bother him or there was no judgment there there was no like dismissal either not saying that that might happen I mean anything's possible people are weird man so that was that was kind of how things ended up with that sponsor and so I kind of still had it in my head that that was what I was going to be looking for but then I the more I thought about the fact that I just needed to have a sponsor the more I fell back on well who do I know that has what I want in life and that doesn't mean like financially I don't make a lot of money I don't have any assets so that's everybody basically, who has any significant amount of sobriety is going to have financially what I want, you know, if that's how I'm going to look at it. That that wasn't even a factor. What I needed was somebody that had overcome struggles in their sobriety, remained sober, and found themselves working the program to get through those struggles. Pretty, pretty much it. People that have, over the years, just increasingly done a little bit more to get better. And so that's exactly what happened. The person I chose is my sponsor. One, he's younger than me. I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. He's emotionally more mature than me. And two, he had exactly that. While he found himself in a similar position of not having actively worked the program like he maybe should have, it was kind of one of those mutually beneficial situations. He hadn't had a sponsor in a couple years, and I needed a sponsor because, or he hadn't had a sponsor in a couple years. I needed a sponsor because I was getting to that point where I felt like I could start doing this alone, as I've mentioned, and he identified with that and knew that that's kind of where he was as well. So, you know, we, you know, it was weird. It's awkward asking someone. I mean, I've known this person basically the whole time I've been sober, They've been at my meeting hall this whole time, you know, we've gone camping together. Like it wasn't, we weren't friends, friends. Like we, you know, we didn't talk every day. We didn't hardly ever see him throughout the pandemic, but I knew stuff about him like that you would learn about a friend. 
you know, and if I had a need, I'm sure I could call this person and they would have been there for me. But it was still awkward. It's still an awkward thing to ask someone, hey, will you basically, will you, will you walk me through this program and take me under your wing? Because, well, for me, I mean, I have social anxiety. Like, it's just how it is. So asking anybody for any kind of a commitment is fucking struggle for me. So asking somebody for this kind of a commitment was doubly struggle because of course I want to make it about me, right? But ultimately, I didn't want to let somebody down. So, you know, my perfectionist, my version of perfection is if I think I'm going to fail at something, uh, any chance I can fail at something, I just don't bother. So uh, I convinced myself that it, you know, it's not worth the effort or I have a very good way of talking myself out of a lot of things. But I think where I'm at in my life right now is I know that if I ask this, if I ask this person to be my sponsor, then I knew I was going to start following through with this stuff. I was committed. And this kind of a commitment I take very seriously. So I needed to make sure that I was going to be able to handle the commitment because if I started failing that, then my program was going to struggle even more. And and that's how I could really backslide. Um, And that they were also going to be able to fulfill the commitment. Just because somebody says they're willing to sponsor doesn't mean they're going to be any good at it. It doesn't mean it's going to be a good fit. And it doesn't mean that they're not flaky or hard to deal with. But... You know, I don't see that being an issue. I don't see any of that being an issue. I think this is going to be a perfect fit. And if it's not, then what's important also is that you aren't married to your sponsor. If it's not working out, it's not working out. If you need to fire your sponsor, I don't know why they call it that. If you need to find a different sponsor, then that's just what needs to happen. As the sponsee, it's you need a sponsor in order for you to make it through the program without any issues. Like, you need to just be kind of helped along on some of the parts that are just a little bit difficult. And I know some people that feel like they don't need a sponsor at all because this stuff isn't that hard. But I feel like just you're doing yourself a disservice. As a sponsor, your, you know, goal is to give this program away in a way that allows you to keep it. And you would think that that would mean that people would be prepared to be a sponsor. But that's not just not always the case. So be careful. Like, select the person wisely if you can now that doesn't mean that you should go without a sponsor because you're looking for the the one get a sponsor as a temporary sponsor anybody basically is going to work as a temporary sponsor as long as at that point you just have that person you can call have them work on that you know thousand pound phone just have one person that's on your speed dial if shit gets weird but as much as this program is designed to have people get better, it doesn't mean that everybody works a good program, and it doesn't mean that everybody's a good sponsor. That's just the fucking facts, man. That's just how it is. And I hate to say it, but there are dudes that prey on women. There are women that prey on dudes. I've been 13th-stepped, <laughs> was taken advantage of, and obviously have a history of having done that myself. But there are sponsors that are that are out there that are just predatory. So be careful. If you, you know, if you feel uncomfortable with somebody, be uncomfortable with them. Let them like fucking sever that relationship and move on. There's no reason to sort of don't worry about hurting feelings. If somebody's working a good program and you decide that you don't want them as your sponsor or that you don't feel like it's a good fit or they're being aggressive and you tell them, I, this isn't a good fit for me. I don't want to do this. I'm not interested. Then they should be able to handle that. They should be able to deal with that, you know, quote unquote rejection. And if you're noticing that there's somebody being a fucking straight up perv, let somebody know. Ask around like, hey, you know, especially if you're a woman, 
I know that's again, there's a you know, there's people that are going to be upset about the fact that there's kind of gender roles that come into play here. But yeah, there are dudes that specifically go after vulnerable women as a sponsor and try to take them under their wing. And, it, you know, it's just an uncomfortable part of the fact that that's just how there's fucking creepy dudes everywhere. Now, I personally am of a mind that if somebody is getting weird and creepy like that, I will call them out and I will make sure that that is not behavior that happens again or get the authorities involved if that's what needs to happen. If you're at a meeting hall and this kind of shit gets out of hand, that's a whole other fucking episode, to be quite honest. Uh, it really is. Like, I'm sure I will do one on just specifically the weird shit that's happened in AA. Like, it's just, of course it's going to happen. It happens in the real world, quote unquote. It's going to happen in AA. It's going to happen in a place that's that's got kind of the foundation for cult-like fucking behavior. But again, that's another episode. For this one specifically, when it comes to the sponsor-sponsee relationship, be careful and cautious. Try to choose somebody that's a good fit for you. You are allowed to kind of interview the person Ask them what, you know, the expectations are going to be. And if that just doesn't fit, then find someone else. Don't be so picky that you don't get a sponsor, right? Because that's, to me, a kind of a cop-out. Understand that you can pick somebody as a temporary sponsor. Some people do that and they end up just never looking for another one. Some people feel that they found a good fit and then within a couple of weeks they've, you know, gone on to another one. Some people end up going through sponsors like they went through, like I went through ex-girlfriends. Like you, you just... Keep in mind what the purpose of the relationship is and act accordingly. Well, if you've li listened to any of my previous episodes, then you know that I just am going to go off on some things. And that's this has been no different. I'm already 20 minutes into this thing, essentially, and haven't even gotten to the daily stoic reading that I usually go off on. Um, so I'll try to keep that a little short so we can get into the reading. Uh, but if you have any further questions about sponsor, sponsee relationships hit me up. You know, the primary reason for me sharing that was that I found a new sponsor, that I'm working the program, I'm putting the effort into it. I'm not just saying this stuff so that people will do the things, but also just to kind of give a, an idea for newcomers who are maybe hesitant to get a sponsor, a little bit about the process and the purpose behind it. So just in case that wasn't clear. But uh, anyways, without further ado, I'm going to try to line this up with when I think this episode is going to drop. So this is uh, this is September 7th. Today is not September 7th, but hopefully that's when this will be released. This is Our Hidden Power. Consider who you are, above all, a human being, carrying no greater power than your own reasoned choice, which oversees all other things and is free from any other master. Epictetus Discourses 2.10.1 The psychologist Viktor Frankl spent three years imprisoned in various concentration camps, including Auschwitz. His family and his wife had been killed, his life's work destroyed, his freedom taken from him. He quite literally had nothing left. Yet, as he discovered after much thought, he still retained one thing, the ability to determine what this suffering meant. Not even the Nazis could take that from him. Further, Frankl realized that he could actually find positives in his situation. Here was an opportunity to continue testing and exploring his psychological theories, and perhaps revise them. He could still be of service to others. He even took some solace in the fact that his loved ones were spared the pain and misery that he faced daily in that camp. Your hidden power is your ability to use reason and make choices, however limited or small. Think about the areas of your life where you are under duress or weighed down by obligation. What are the choices available to you day after day? You might be surprised at how many there actually are. Are you taking advantage? Are you finding the positives? 
Now, this is something I actually try to follow regularly in my life. Uh, more specifically, when I talk about having survived a, a suicide attempt, having in sobriety come close to suicide and what I was able to do with that, having gone to prison, having survived being raised by alcoholics and drug addicts. You know, my story has a lot of stuff in it. I share it fairly regularly and I'm pretty open about it. And I try to utilize those things as a tool that could help others, be it help someone who's been to prison and is just trying to figure out how to survive outside of prison, be it talking with people who have never done time but want to know more about the system. Uh, for a time, I was doing activism work revolved around that so that I could share my story and be of service that way. And in a lot of ways, I have a unique story. I was very young when I went in. I wasn't a hardcore criminal that these, you know, crimes were designed to be a deterrent for. I wasn't, I wasn't the quote-unquote type that you would expect having done time or gone to prison. And while I was in there, despite the state's best efforts, I was able to learn from it and grow from it. Now, that experience doesn't change just because afterwards I went back to drinking and I did other things. That growth that I had in there still is it still applies to things. My experiences are still applicable, even though maybe I didn't do what I needed to with them afterwards. Those are different experiences that I can then use as a part of my story to help other people. You know, without those, I wouldn't have ended up surviving a suicide attempt. I wouldn't be able to talk to people about what I was thinking before, during, and even after. Why I made the choices that I made. What led me to that? You know, my story is unique and it's going to help people. You know, in sobriety, what got me to the point to where I was considering that as an option again? Why was it different? Why didn't I go through with it? What changed? You know, those things are going to, they're going to have an important impact on somebody. And I'm not trying to act like I'm somehow this important figure in the world and that I'm going to change the entire world. But I know that if I keep sharing that, it's going to make somebody else more willing to share that. If I talk about my suicide attempt and the fact that I survived it and how my life improved after and that, you know, a part of me doesn't regret that I tried to kill myself. Uh, but obviously the next time around, I had tools equipped and in ready uh, to stop me from making that choice again. You know, this stuff is important to share. There are positives to every bit of my story, even if the only positive that I can garner from it is the fact that it might help somebody else by sharing it. So never feel like the hard parts of your story don't have value. While I don't necessarily agree with the idea that there's always positives in everything, I do think it's important to reflect on things that are happening or have happened to you and try to figure out how that could be applied to make a better version of you the next day, even if it's by the very tiniest increments. I know there's like this kind of memed version of survivor. I'm a survivor. I mean, realistically, we all are. If we're still here, if you're listening to this, you're a survivor. Everybody is. You know, our lineage goes all the way back to fucking cavemen if we're still alive. You know what I mean? Like, we're, of course we're survivors. What are you gonna do with it? So you survived and then what? How are you going to use that story? How are you going to not only grow from this, but how are you going to make this something that works for you? How can you benefit from the misery that you've lived through? So yeah, that was a very powerful reading for me, uh, I think. I hope others are able to get something from that the same way that I do. If you did, please share it. I'd love to hear it. 
whatever this touched on for you. You can join the Facebook group at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can send me an email directly at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. You can try to send a message through any of the apps that you've used here. I should be able to find the message that way. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at oneatheistin. Send me a message. Share your story. Tell me how this applied to you. Tell me, I mean, give me feedback on any of the episodes, any of the stuff. I'm open to hearing your story. I'm also open to hearing your feedback and your criticisms. So feel free to reach out. I'm all ears. Without further ado, we'll get right into the reading. This is How It Works from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. Now, I think for me personally, one of the points of contention that I might have with this program is the idea that, you know, people who don't recover just aren't willing to give this particular program a full try. So it's kind of MLM-y in that way. You know, it's never the program. It's always the people uh, if there is a failing. And I don't think that's really the case. Maybe that was at the time because there really wasn't much else to hold this up against outside of Oxford group stuff, right? But we've definitely proven over the years that there are other forms of recovery that do work for people. I, again, and I will always encourage others to give those a try. If after all the information you get about AA, you find that this program isn't for you, definitely explore other ones. And I will later in in other episodes explore other versions and ways of staying sober. There are so many. So don't feel like the reason why I'm reading this stuff is because I feel that this is the only way. This is just the way that works for me, and I think there it will work for others. Obviously, it has. So this line in there kind of it rankles me a little bit that and I get why they say it said it but also like you know just kind of puts all the responsibility on the person because they didn't specifically work AA properly <clears throat> there are such unfortunates they are not at fault they seem to have been born that way they are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty their chances are less than average there are those too who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest Now, that part I think is important. If you're not able to be honest with yourself, you're not going to have a very successful time staying sober or even improving your life. Be prepared to, at the very least, be honest with yourself. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. At some of these, we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. So, yeah, now, I think as a newcomer, this might be kind of scary to hear, basically, that every aspect of you needs to change. You can't hold on to any old way of thinking. And that's not quite true. Like, the parts of you that need to change are the ones that are trying to actively kill you. They're the ones trying to actively do you harm. And we'll get to that later. And it is covered, but it's not everything. I would very easily be able to describe my sarcasm as probably a character defect, but it's not something I feel I need to get rid of if it's not causing me to get drunk. 
So no, not every aspect of your old way of thinking needs to go. But if it's if it's hindering your ability to live a manageable life, then yeah, it's got to go. So yeah, there is this part of it that you have to be prepared of. There are levels of change that are going to be required. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now or not find him. Maybe you don't find him. Maybe you're like me and him or her or it or whatever. Just never manifest. That's okay too. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. <clears throat> so, yeah. Now, I do agree that the half measures thing doesn't get you very far. If you half-ass this program, you're going to get half the results. And probably all the misery. Um, that is more than likely something I have heard in a meeting, and it applies 100%. If you're not willing to actually do the work then you're not going to really get the results you hope for. While that sounds fairly contradictory to what I said about this program, you know, having that MLME kind of blame the person thing, what I am saying is this particular program does have a set of things that you have to do, and if you don't really give that a lot of effort, you're not going to get a lot of results. That part of it is like the honesty thing. If you're not able to be honest with yourself, it's a big one, don't expect to, you know, be a very pleasant, sober person. It's just not going to happen. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Now, I'm going to read the steps as they're written in the book. I'm also going to give some alternatives. I don't see any harm in that. There's a book actually called AA Agnostica, a collection of alternative 12 steps. It's got every kind of 12-step you know, translation that you could ever need in there. And it all really roughly amounts to the same kind of message. But we'll start with what, you know, the program has as it's written, and then we'll explore a couple of other options before moving on with the reading. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed, became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, obviously, as an atheist or even an agnostic, there's a lot of problematic language in that. A lot of stuff that seems very overwhelming for somebody that's just trying to quit right now. A lot of promises that you're internalizing from the get-go before even really coming grips with the fact that, you know, how much of your life is going to change. What what the, What is this process really going to be about? So I have over the years kind of had issue with this being written or read in every single meeting. Again, the ritual aspect of it, I guess I kind of understand. But as a newcomer, there's a lot of shit in here where you're like, this is 
and it even goes on to say many of ex- many of us exclaimed what an order i can't go through with it so yeah it's a lot to deal with a lot of, a lot to take on uh, originally the steps only had six of them and i can't seem to find like a transcription of this i'm sure it's out there and i'm sure i could have found it if i looked a little harder the six that were written by bill are written in his handwriting and it's very hectic cursive uh, so i'll do my best here the first one admitted hopeless two god found with help three uh god humble with fuck, i don't know that word man i've tried i've tried reading this ahead of time but it really is just hard to hard to dissect four made amends five helped other controlled demand six prayed to god as you understood him this is back in 1953 it looks like it was hastily written down on a napkin i love it I love that that's like he just scrolled was like here's where we're going to kind of go with it and then it turned into these 12 steps. Now, these 6 were very similar to some of the Oxford group kind of step work they seemed to do. And there are meetings that are actually 6 step meetings that sort of arose from this which I found interesting. So now we'll look at a couple other options for the steps and then I'm going to just break down these steps real quick based on how I look at them cuz I don't really go off of a secular version of these. I just try to make these ones work for me and I, and I that's not going to work for everybody. So here's a secular version I found online. There's a bunch of different templates, but this one is actually what Bill Wilson kind of had come up with as a, an alternative. So I like this one just for that reason. Again, there's others out there. There's a whole book that just has a ton of them. I go to another meeting on occasion that it's up to whoever is going to read that portion to pick out of that book, whatever version they want to read. 12 secular steps for addiction recovery. 1. Admitted that I am an addict or alcoholic and that my life has become unmanageable. 2. Came to believe that through honesty and effort combined with the help of others I I could recover from addiction or alcoholism. I don't know why it's interchangeable in this. 3. Made a decision to actively work a 12-step recovery plan to the best of my ability. 4. Completed a searching and fearless moral inventory of myself. 5. Honestly admitted to myself and to another human being the results of my inventory including my defects of character. 6. Became willing to change defects in my character. 7. Accepted responsibility for my actions. 8. Listed all persons I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. 9. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. Continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought to improve my conscious awareness of ethical principles and values and to use them consistently as standards for my decisions and actions. 12. Having matured as a person as a result of these steps, I acknowledge my commitment to help others and to continue to use these principles in my daily life. Now, I do feel like if you were to read that in a regular meeting, then people would just fucking combust. But this does seem to be put together by Bill W. Or at least is a collection of something that was put together. It says the source from that was the 12 Secular Steps and Addiction Recovery Guide by Bill W. Um, That could be a different Bill W. Like there's a lot of Bill W's. Actually, I think that is a different Bill W now that I remember correctly. But either way, like that is essentially what's, what's being said in the original 12 Steps. But said in a way that's just removing... This sort of, I guess to me, the scapegoaty idea that God's going to handle this shit, like just this some other thing, like I just get to hand all this real difficult stuff off to somebody and he's going to come back with it all solved for me. Um, This is all me, you know, this version. We read a different version of my meeting, but I couldn't find it on here and I don't have a copy of it. If anybody's interested in that version, the one that we read in our meetings, let me know. I'll I'll hunt that version down and, and get it out to you. Now, there are, like I said, multiple different versions of this on here. While I probably could spend half a day 
day just reading them all. One of them that I think is my favorite comes out of the book Recovery by Russell Brand. Now, if you're not familiar with Russell Brand's work in recovery and his work uh, lately, kind of set aside the version of him that you might know from having been just sort of a very ferocious sex addict, kind of, I guess, in some ways, annoying human that he could potentially have been, if that's the version you you remember. Uh, he's changed into a very much more spiritual kind of free thinker type, and his insights into recovery are actually really great. Like, I loved this book, Recovery. I love the fact that it isn't just formulated around the idea that you're you're quitting an addiction like drugs and alcohol. You could apply this kind of work to how fucking much time you spend on your phone or video games or sex or porn or whatever other things might be getting in your way. Uh, but he also is hilarious. So here's his 12 steps, or at least a way to look at them. Step one, are you a bit fucked? Two, could you not be fucked? Three, are you on your own going to unfuck yourself? Four, write down all the things that are fucking you up or have ever fucked you up and don't lie or leave anything out. Five, honestly tell someone trustworthy about how fucked you are. Six, well, that's revealed a lot of fucked up patterns. Do you want to stop it? Seriously? Seven, are you willing to live in a new way that's not all about you and your previous fucked up stuff? You have to. Eight, prepare to apologize to everyone for everything affected by your being so fucked up. Nine, now apologize unless that would make things worse. 10, watch out for fucked up thinking and behavior and be honest when it happens. 11, stay connected to your new perspective. 12, look at life less selfishly, be nice to everyone, help people if you can. So yeah, that's obviously an easier way of looking at it. So, you know, I think now that I'm really considering it, since I'm going to be going through the 12 by 12 and really digging into these steps, I'm going to kind of wait to go over these in depth then because well, honestly, it's just, it'd be, it'd be multiple episodes just going into just those 12 things. Cause it is, I mean, it's a lot to take in. It's a lot of stuff you're going to have to go through. This chapter goes through a little bit of it. Um, going through this stuff with a sponsor is helpful. So I think for the most part, just the little bit of commentary that I'm going to give in the next sort of set of this is, is going to be, you know, fine. I don't know how long it would take me to go through every single one of these because it, it, there is a lot to it which I like. This is the part of the program that I really think has benefited me the most. It is the meat of the program. Back to the reading. Many of us have ex exclaimed, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Now, obviously, if you want to remove the spiritual aspect of that, I don't... Personally, again, I don't feel I feel that the, the word spiritual is a bad word. I don't find that it has to be a supernatural ideal. I think very much it could just be boiled down to a, a certain kind of mindfulness and introspection that can occur after really digging into the, you know, the ins and outs of what makes you you and it's a constant process. That's the part of this that I think is important. This is this is not something that you get there's no graduation from this. This isn't something that you just stop doing. This isn't something that takes little effort. There's a lot of work involved and it's constant work. And sometimes it's hard work that doesn't seem to be going anywhere. But as long as you're making progress, then you're doing it right. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventure before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were salt. So, 
again, this is the thing that's read in every meeting pretty much in every city in America uh, that's, you know, traditional for the most part. The, um, the A part's pretty obvious, right? B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. For me, again, it's the program. The program is not a human power. It is something outside of human power. It's not a person telling me to complete this program. It was a collective of people and ideals and experiences, which is for me above human, I guess. You know what I mean? Like it's humanity. It's a humane thing. Uh, but it's not just, I'm not just following some person blindly down an alleyway, hoping that I'm going to get a better deal at the end of it. It's, it's a process. See that God could and would if he were so. Obviously that's just not applicable to me. Uh, being convinced we were at step three. So yeah, rapid fire, bam, bam, bam which is that we decided to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood him. Just what do we mean by that? And just what do we do? The first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. <sighs> Maybe, I don't know that I really can get behind that idea. Like, I, again, I'm going to say this. I know that I, I understand what they're trying to say. Like, you can't just do this on your own. Your best thinking got you into this mess. So you have to be able to be open to the fact that maybe your, I guess, will, I don't know, your your thinking needs to change and maybe it needs to come from an outside source. Again, this program, another program, smart recovery, CBT, counseling, whatever it might be, right? It's going to have to come from somewhere else. Can't come from within you. Maybe you do eventually find it within you and you just can quit. That's awesome too. Uh, I wasn't one of those, those people and I know plenty that aren't. So on that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is like an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. Yeah, this is this is the control aspect of the program. Feeling like you're capable of controlling every aspect of your life and feeling like you're a constant failure because you can't control any of it. That's the, the use, you're not obviously use specifically listener it's just whoever you know that could apply to if his arrangements would only stay put if only people would do as he wished the show would be great everybody including himself would be pleased life would be wonderful in trying to make these arrangements our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous he may be kind considerate patient generous even modest and self-sacrificing on the other hand he may be mean egotistical selfish and dishonest but as with most humans, he is more likely to have varied traits. So yeah, I mean, if you try to run the show all the time, you're always going to fail because that's not how life works at all. And at the end of the day, you're probably going to, you know, react in a way that isn't healthy. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think life doesn't treat him right. He decides to exert himself more. He becomes, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. And what they mean there is still more demanding is like a control freak, overpowering, aggressive person. Or still more gracious is kind of a pushover or codependent or is people pleaser. Still, the play does not suit him. Admitting he may be somewhat at fault, he is sure that other people are more to blame. He becomes angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is this basic trouble? Is he not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Is he not a victim of the delusion that he can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if he only manages well? Is it not evident to all the rest of the players that these are the things he wants? 
and do not his actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Is he not, even in his best moments, a producer of confusion rather than harmony? I mean, this has got to be Bill Wilson. The, the, the basic metaphor that he's really reaching here for is how are we, you know, speaking from myself, when I was a people pleaser you or codependent, it came from fear of loss right and rejection when i was that way with a significant other it was in an attempt to basically manipulate them and staying you know the whole adage that we don't you know we don't have boyfriends and girlfriends we don't make friends we take hostages yeah i mean it's just as manipulative to try to control people through people pleasing right as it is to control them through aggressive behavior and outright you know vocal controlling behavior um and it all lacks, it all comes from the same idea of, you know, lacking control. And when it doesn't work out, yeah, there's a whole idea of, well, people are just jealous. People are out to get me. It's everybody else. It's the whole world. If they'd all just done what I wanted, we everything would have been fine. Our actor is self-centered, egocentric, as people like to call it nowadays. He is like the retired businessman who lulls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nation. The minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century. Politicians and performers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave. The outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him. And the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. Whatever our protestations are, not most of us concerned with ourselves, our resentment, or our self-pity. Selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation. But we invariably find that as time... As sometime in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. And I think that's a very powerful way of putting it. When you really play the tapes backwards, I, personally, can find many times where I thought that somebody had done me wrong, and I see that, honestly, it was just that I would put myself in a position to be hurt. I mean, being offended is, is really, that's exactly what that is. It's really easy for me to choose what I am offended about, right? I mean, there are things that I can find offensive, but as many comedians have pointed out, so what? Like, I'm offended. Now what? My old behavior would be to formulate some kind of an action around that. How dare someone offend me? In prison, if I were to be offended by the word punk, that meant I would have to fight somebody. Or worse. Somebody called you a bitch. You better be ready to fucking take him out to the way pile. Talk about offense. And that's what, you know, physical action really comes down to. Being so offended by something that somebody said that you're willing to beat them up. That you're willing to place someone in physical harm because those words hurt so bad. Words. Like, that's just the crazy nature of some of the thinking that revolves around alcoholic drinking. I'm not saying that only alcoholics experience this. I'm saying that specifically in dealing with myself as an alcoholic, once I got sober, I still had to fix this shit. This, this idea that, you know, don't, don't you know who I am? And I'm not really the kind of person that runs around that way, but I still have that kind of thinking. Like, you cut me off. What the fuck? You cut me off. You know, like it, I don't know if there's another way of really explaining that, but yeah, like... How many times have I put myself in a position to be offended or be hurt? Because I have chosen to have a relationship with a certain thing that causes me some kind of weird pain uh, because I don't have control over it. Like, like traffic, like being late for work, 
You know, I can be mad that I'm late for work because somebody caused an accident and therefore there's traffic, but I could also leave a little early and not really have to worry about that or build a relationship with my boss that if it's not that big of a deal if I'm late once in a great while because there is traffic. You know, there's all these different things I could do. Like the world isn't designed to meet every aspect of my needs. Uh, so our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves and the alcoholic Extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must, or it kills us. God makes that possible. Yeah, well. And there are often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Now, yeah, I mean... I am kind of on repeat with this, but I mean, clearly there's people that don't need God to have a moral and ethical and just life. Humanism doesn't really require a benevolent or vicious dictator-like God entity in order to do the good things. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. This is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Now, whether you believe in God or not, this is a true statement. First and foremost, stop trying to control everything. You'll never do it. It's just not something that's going to happen. An example of controlling things, even from a non-aggressive manner, are doing nice things with the expectations that someone's going to do something nice in return. Now, I do believe that putting good out in the world makes it a high possibility that good gets returned to you, but it's not always the case, and it is not a requirement. I don't do good because I expect good. I do good because I'm willing to observe when good is done in return. <coughs> And as a guy, this specifically goes out to folks that, that fall in line with this idea that, that the friend zone exists, that there's like social credit that you can acquire by being nice to a woman in such a way that they will owe you certain things, like a date or more. It's just not how that works. Being nice to people and expecting things in return isn't being nice. It's not being a nice guy. It's not being a nice girl. It's not being a nice person. It is manipulating people into doing things a certain way that you want them to. It's a form of control, just like yelling at somebody or threatening them. It's just a little bit more sneaky and quite a bit more slimy. And I say that as somebody that employed that a lot throughout my life. It took me a long time to rid myself of the fact that, well, I'm a nice guy. And it turned out I wasn't. I may have done nice things, but man, it really came with some credit. There was, there was a requirement of debt. Y'all better pay up. Remember that nice thing I did? <clears throat> this is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. I said that it didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter, in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new triumphant arc through which we passed to freedom. And I think this kind of passage has a lot to do with how some folks see recovery in that long timers have kind of almost reached some kind of deity level in the program. I don't really fall in line with that at all. I'm definitely of a mind that if you're working a shitty program, I don't care that you have 20 years of it. Like, good for you. You've managed to dry drunk for 20 years inside a program. You know, if you're still an asshole and you're still awful, just because you say AA things doesn't mean that you're working a good solid program. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. 
being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. See, that's where I have a major issue, and I will again say, there shouldn't. this is the kind of relationship I just said that we shouldn't be trying to have with, with other people. We shouldn't be doing nice things, expecting nice things in return. We certainly shouldn't have this God aspect in our life where we have to continue to bribe him to be nice to us by doing nice things. Like, look at all this social credit that they just said they had to employ in order to ensure that God continued to provide for them. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. That I agree with 100%. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could fa- we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or hereafter. We were reborn. Now, it this is very easy to kind of pick apart. Basically, if you're present in your life as it is now, and you're interested in doing good just for the sake of being a better person, then good things happen, and it becomes easier to live in today, and not to worry about tomorrow, and not to suffer yesterday as if it were happening right now. We were now at step three. Many of us said to our maker, as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Remove, <laughs> relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at least abandon ourselves utterly to him. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to expect anybody to, you know, read read that and, and pray and do all that kind of stuff. I have heard of sponsors say, okay, now we're going to actually pray, even though they knew they were atheists. Like, I, if, if it's not something I think is required at all. I do think it's important to just take a minute and really appreciate the fact that you don't have to do this alone. I think for me, that's what step three is. If we're going to dissect at least some of this, I suppose that's important since it's talking about it right now. It's just we don't have to do this alone. There are options. There's people that are going to help. This program is going to help. Doing it alone is not going to do any good. It hasn't done any good. This is proof that there are options to do it with others. Uh, It's just not, you know, it doesn't have to be a sky daddy. We found it very desirable to take this spiritual step with an understanding person, such as our wife, best friend, or spiritual advisor. But it is better to meet God alone than with one who might misunderstand. The wording word, the wording was, of course, quite optional, so long as we expressed the idea, voicing it without reservation. This was only a beginning, though, if honestly and humbly made, an effect, sometimes a very great one, was felt at once. Next, we launched out on a course of vigorous action. The first step of which is personal house cleaning, which many of us had never attempted. Though our decision was vital and crucial step, it could have little permanent effect unless it at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and to be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. God, some of these freaking sentences, man. Our liquor was but a symptom, so we had to get down to causes and conditions. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. Now, Almost every version of the 12 steps that I've read, step four is the same or very, very similar. Very little wording that changes with step four. So for me, it's one of the most important steps, not just for that, for many, many other reasons, but even across all forms of the AA program, it seems to be the most consistent or at least the least changed. That just further signifies the importance of this portion of it. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. Taking commercial inventory is a fact-finding and fact-facing process. 
It is in an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damaged or unsaleable goods, to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of the business is, so, is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. We did exactly the same thing with our lies. We took stock honestly. First, we searched out the flaws in our makeup which caused our failure. Being convinced that self manifested in various ways was what had defeated us we considered its common manifestations yeah this is uh this is where the real meat is and i know i'm probably going to kind of just breeze through this portion um right now but it, it will be revisited again the 12 by 12 is going to break down all this stuff and we're going to go over that a little bit more in detail again portions of this should be worked through with somebody I, I shouldn't be the person actually taking you through the steps. Now, if stuff I say helps you understand or digest this stuff or helps you come to terms with it or at least inspires you to actually seek a sponsor and go through this stuff, then I hope that's what happens. That's more what my purpose is here. Uh, or just give it another way of looking at it. Maybe this is something that you can then take to your sponsees who are an atheist and maybe you're not. Like, I, I, I just don't want this to be seeming like I'm just glossing it over because I don't want to deal with it. There's just a lot of meat here. Like this is very, very important stuff. And this is the part of the book that I think does the most. Resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. And I agree with this 100%. From it stem all forms of spiritual disease. For we have been not only mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. In dealing with resentments, we set them on paper. Now this this is a process I think is very important, but also it's just something that you could possibly look at right now, even if you aren't doing the steps yet, even if you haven't really given yourself into this program or something like that. Just consider this is a part of the trying to be the director and producer and the writer of the whole movie of life. This This resentment thing is a very big portion of that. So much of our actions can be directed towards these resentments how we treat people the things we hold on to the things that we allow to just eat us inside usually stem from some kind of resentment in dealing with resentments we set them on paper we listed people institutions or principles with who we were angry we asked ourselves why we were angry in most cases it was found that our self-esteem our pocketbooks our ambitions our personal relationships including sex were hurt or threatened yeah basically our resentments are a result of us having shit we need to work through doesn't usually even have anything to do with another person that's not saying that people can't do harm obviously people can do things that are harmful whether you're prepared for it or not uh, this isn't an attempt to suggest that everything is your own personal and sole responsibility but what you do with it after is so we were sore we were burned up on our grudge list we set opposite each name our injuries was it our self-esteem our security our ambitions our personal or sex relations which had been interfered with we were usually as definite as this example. We went through, <clears throat> we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. The first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. The usual outcome was that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. Sometimes it was remorse and then we were sore at ourselves. But the more we fought and tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. As in war, the victor only seemed to win. Our moments of triumph were short-lived. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent that we permit, permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile. But with the alcoholic, 
whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal, for when harboring such feeling, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again, and with us, to drink is to die. Now, the resentment thing is usually external, right? I mean, that's usually what I feel most people start pointing to immediately is these resentments they have of other people. And a lot of this work deals with that. But the biggest resentments that I always had were of myself. They were definitely directed at my own internal thinking or being or whatever. And I think it's important to really consider the whole picture, meaning that if you're going to start looking at resentments, you should definitely be willing to start with yourself. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. Now, I disagree in that we should not feel anger. I agree that we should be able to digest anger and react reasonably to it. Being angry is just nature being happy, being sad, all these emotions just occur. And over time, we can condition ourselves to react differently emotionally, right? But we shouldn't try to control or suppress any of these emotions, especially anger. Controlling how we act towards certain things or what things mean to us changes those emotions. But at first, the big just indicator is how we react to those emotions. If you have an issue with anger, that doesn't mean stop being angry. It means stop being a dick when you're angry. <laughs> Pretty simple stuff once you really kind of think about it. Like, oh, I'm really mad. So fucking what? Be mad. But don't be mad at others. Don't start taking it out on others. Just be mad. We were prepared to look for it from an entirely different angle. We began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. And that's kind of what I was saying. Like, once you start changing internally, the kinds of things people do will bring a different kind of emotional response. Right now, if somebody can piss you off bad enough that you're going to throttle them, you're going to start beating their ass just because they say a couple choice words, well, that puts all the power in their hands. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had power to actually kill. How could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. We asked God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended us, we said to ourselves, This is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. Now, I just don't really recommend this. I suppose, like I get kind of what they're saying, but for me, just looking at everybody like they were sick, sad souls, just made me feel like I needed to be out there saving everybody, and that wasn't really the case. Some pi Sometimes people are just dicks because they are. Like, that's just, it's not because they're spiritually sick or whatever. It just means that they also have unresolved bullshit that they have to deal with, and some people just are never going to deal with it. So, yeah, I guess in some ways, give people that pass that they're sick and they might just need some kind of help. Like, I try to go there first. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe, you know, X, Y, and Z. But there are people in my life that have tried to take advantage of the fact that I respond a certain way. And it is okay to stand up for yourself in those instances. I have found that over time, I am able to do that in a way that is professional and reasonable and not in a way that calls upon my time in prison. 
if that makes sense. We avoid retaliation or argument. We wouldn't treat sick people that way. If we do, we, we destroy our chance of being helpful. We cannot be helpful to all people, but at least God will show us how to take a kindly and tolerant view of each and every one. Referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others had done, we resolu resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been? Selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. Though a situation had not been entirely all our fault, we tried to disregard the other person involved entirely. Where were we to blame? The inventory was ours, not the other man's. When we saw our faults, we listed them. We placed them before us in black and white. We admitted our wrongs honestly and were willing to set these matters straight. Uh, it is worth noting here that when when doing the fourth step, and you'll get to this, and I'll, I'm sure others will, will tell you about it, but I, I just like to point this out in this section. It's important to write this stuff out by hand. Like it might seem easier to make like a spreadsheet in Excel and start typing this stuff up, but too many psychological studies have shown that there is an inherent importance to putting pen to paper to ignore it. Like it's just unreasonable to remove that element when there is significant data to show that there is just a connection between really putting the kinetic energy to writing things out. And so writing this out should be of paramount concern. Like definitely write this stuff out. Uh, don't try to skip that corner. Like don't don't sell yourself short. Like it might take a little bit more time to actually physically write this stuff out, but there is an importance to it. Now you're not going to be able to visualize this because it's in the book and I'm not going to just describe it, but they're mentioning a graph kind of thing that they've written out or drawn out in the book as, as somewhat of a helpful, like, this is how this is supposed to look. But you, you can look that up. You know, I'm sure whoever your sponsor is or however you end up going about this, you'll be able to find a format that works. Notice that the word fear is bracketed alongside the difficulties with Mr. Brown, Miss Jones, the employer, and the wife. This short word somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. It set in motion trains of circumstances which brought us mis misfortune we felt we didn't deserve. But did not we ourselves set the ball rolling? Sometimes we think fear ought to be classified with stealing. It seems to cause more trouble. Yeah, fear is fear is just it man i mean a lot of fear of the unknown of of rejection of almost everything can be boiled down to a sort of fear reviewed our uh, we reviewed our fears thoroughly we put them on paper even though we had no resentment in connection with them we asked ourselves why we had them wasn't it because self-reliance failed us self-reliance was good as far as it went but didn't go far enough some of us once had great self-confidence, but it didn't fully solve the fear problem or any other. When it made us cocky, it was worse. Perhaps there is a better way. We think so, for we are now on a different basis. The basis of trusting and relying upon God. Again, the program or whatever you know thing you choose or choose to admit, omit. We trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him does he enable us to match calamity with serenity and, so, and this is where like the disconnect for me happens like so as as long as we just choose our own path then we're cir circumventing god's plan but everything's in god's plan we're just not in god's plan when we're trying to act our own way or something i don't know this is where it's like fucking clearly this shit doesn't make any sense we never apologize to anyone for depending upon our creator we can laugh at those who think spirituality the way of weakness paradoxically it is the way of strength 
Yeah, sort of. I kind of agree with this. The idea of being able to surrender to something, and maybe that word is a trigger for some folks, the idea of being able to trust in a program like this or other forms of recovery and working that process having results is a very freeing feeling. Like for me, there's a lot of relief in doing these programs, doing AA, and a lot of strength that comes from it. I feel equipped to deal with a lot of regular problems that used to just fuck my world up based based on the fact that I have this stuff to rely on. The verdict of the ages is that faith means courage. All men of faith have courage. They trust their God. We never apologize for God. Instead, we let him demonstrate through us what he can do. We ask him to remove our fear and direct our attention to what he would have us be. At once, we commence to outgrow fear. I don't know that there's a lot that I really need to say there that hasn't already been said. Uh, so I'm just going to move uh, move on. Now about sex. Many of us needed an overhauling here. But above all, we try to be uh, sensible on this question. It's so easy to get way off track. Here we find human opinions running to extremes, absurd extremes perhaps. One set of voices cry that sex is a lust of our lower nature and base necessity of procreation. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it, or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow a man no flavor for his fare, and the other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbiter of some of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? Now, yeah, there's whole programs built around sex, you know, sexaholic behavior. This program, what I found... Personally, for me, is that when it comes to interpersonal relationships, sex definitely mucked things up unnecessarily. And there were times that I operated in a way just to obtain that and wasn't it wasn't always my true nature. Like I wasn't who I really was as a person. And it came from very selfish and self-centered place. I mean, obviously, I mentioned before that I had 13th step somebody. So clearly sex wasn't and is still kind of an issue. And it does cover that. But really, it all revolves around fear and being loved and feeling appreciated and feeling like somebody found me attractive. And, you know, just all selfish and self-centered things, just things that were inside myself. That self-confidence needing something outside of me to validate it. We've reviewed our conduct over the past years. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got all this down on paper and looked at it. In this way, we tried to shape a sane and sound ideal for our future sex life. We subjected each relation to this test. Was it selfish or not? We asked God to mold our ideals and help us to live up to them. We remembered always that our sex powers were God-given and therefore good, neither to be used lightly or selflessly, selfishly, nor to be despised and loathed. I, you know, feel like the book is doing its best in saying that, like, we don't kink shame here, uh, but that should be, like, kind of the given, you know? If you got a thing, I mean, unless you're doing something that's harmful to other people, if you're doing a thing that is harmful to other people, that's something serious, especially of a sexual nature, and that should be fucking considered. Like, if that's, if that's something you have to work through, maybe a sponsor isn't 
the full direction you need to go and you need to seek some outside help but you know if you just like some weird kinky stuff in the bedroom that's of a consensual nature that you share with somebody else like you know you got to look at the possibility that you shouldn't feel ashamed about that stuff as long as it it wasn't selfish i mean if you're doing a thing that's harming someone that's what this is talking about but that doesn't mean that just because religion thinks certain things you might like are evil that you're doing something wrong that's a different conversation Whatever our ideal turned out turns out to be, we must be willing to grow toward it. We must be willing to make amends where we have done harm, provided that we do not bring about still more harm in doing so. In other words, we treat sex as we would any other problem. In meditation, we ask God what we should do about each specific matter. The right answer will come if we want it. I, again, you shouldn't have to beg the ether to give you a thing and you'll get it now that you've asked for it a certain way. Like what it's really just saying is like really ruminate about this stuff. Think about it in, a, in an objective light. Don't, you know, don't think of it as going through this list and just seeing how you can flagellate yourself, right? As mentioned in another episode, it's not, this is not the purpose of that. It's not for us to look at all this stuff and be like, man, I'm a piece of shit. It's unhealthy. It's unnecessary. But it exists, and it's a thing. And we need to look at it like, is this still a problem? Is this line item on this sheet of paper, is this hanging me up? Is this where a lot of my anger and resentments form? Is this where I've learned to hate myself? Like, what what about this is causing me so much grief? What about this is something I can't let go. God alone can judge our sex situation. Counsel with persons is often desirable, but we let God be the final judge. You know, that internal, like, moral compass is your God right now. Like, it doesn't, yeah, you might want to talk about some some of this stuff with someone. You know, don't get into the weird details if it's, like, personal sex matters, but don't rely on that ether being. We realize that some people are as fanatical about sex as others are loose. We avoid hysterical thinking or advice. Suppose we fall short of the chosen ideal and stumble. Does this mean we're going to get drunk? Some people tell us so, but this is only a half-truth. It depends on us and our motives. If we are sorry for what we have done and have the honest desire to let God take us to better things, we believe we will be forgiven and will have learned our lesson. So yeah, kind of. So yeah, if you really actually work through this stuff and you look at all these things objectively and you don't allow them to just rest on your soul or your heart or whatever, then you should be able to work through them. And if they're too big for this sheet of paper, then you seek that outside help. You have a counselor help you work through them. Don't rely on your sponsor as a counselor. That's not the purpose of the sponsor. Look for your sponsor for guidance, and hopefully your sponsor says, this is too big for me, you need to see a counselor. There's going to be things in your life that are probably going to need that. Everything else just needs to be looked at objectively. And if you do that right, then these resentments are going to start to lift. Don't expect them to go away immediately. That's not the purpose of this either. But do expect that you'll be able to work through them over time. If we are not sorry and our conduct continues to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. We are not theorizing. These are facts out of our experience. To sum up about sex, we earnestly pray for the right ideal, for guidance in each questionable situation, for sanity, and for the strength to do the right thing. If sex, if sex is very troublesome, we throw ourselves the harder into helping others. We think of their needs and work for them. This quite uh, this takes us out of ourselves. It, it quiets the imperious urge when to yield would mean heartache. So I think the author of this, it's, this might actually be 
Dr. Bob. It's somebody else. I don't think it's Bill Wilson. Or maybe it's both. Maybe it's a combination of people. Somebody really was struggling with some sex <laughs> when they wrote this. I am of a mind that most of this shit shouldn't be ashamed of. Like, it's not something you should hold on to. But obviously, again, if it's big, then we, we it needs to be addressed. Don't ignore it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Don't be embarrassed by it. Don't be shamed by it. Like, just face it. If we have been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. We have begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We have commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. We have begun to learn tolerance, patience, and goodwill towards all men, even our enemies, for we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we have hurt by our conduct and are willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And again, that word faith isn't a dirty word. Just the belief that if you really truly believe in this process, the idea that if I look at all these things that I've done objectively and I'm willing to work through them over time, then they won't hold any power over me and I can start to look at myself as a self-confident person because I'm not reliant on how other people view me, then my life will improve and I'll be able to handle situations as they're presented to me. Then... That's what's going to happen. Like, just got to actually follow through with this stuff. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from him. If you have already made a decision and an inventory of your grosser handicaps, you have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. And that's that. And I agree 100%. If at the end of all this... You're willing to actually do the work and see the results as they happen and not expect everything to change overnight. Be reasonable and patient. Then you're going to see the truth available. You're going to see life as it could be led. But more importantly, over time, you're going to be able to digest this stuff. Digesting these, these traumas means processing them, means absolving yourself of them. Some of these things will always be there. There are things that have happened in my life that I just will never shake parts of my my time in prison the way my mom treated me there's certain aspects that that'll float around in there and they'll they'll, they'll crop up it doesn't go away forever but every time i've worked these steps and i've made myself prepared for them when they crop up i'm able to easily objectively look at them when i have issues about how my mom treated me when they crop up i'm able to just see them as they are work the steps as they were written and process them i don't react I don't, I don't slowly dissolve into this just heap of pathetic mess where I feel bad about myself and I feel like I'm always going to be this failure, this, you know, I'm always going to be a product of this past that I lived. You know, when I, when I go to apply for an apartment and I get rejected because fucking 20 something years ago, I did a horrible thing. Yeah. There's times where that's hard. Like there is no test I can ever prove to anyone <laughs> that I'm fully, 100% removed from that on paper. You have to meet me and you have to get to know me in order for that to be proof. Sometimes it's hard to know that for the rest of my life, I will never be able to just objectively get an apartment pretty much. I mean, so far, it's never been something I can shake. So yeah, that's hard, man. Sometimes that's really hard to deal with. But I can take a step back and look at this objectively. Obviously, if I had never put myself in that situation to begin with, I wouldn't have these issues about getting an apartment, getting a job in some cases. More so, if I have issues with how background checks are being done, then I can do something about that. And if I choose not to put effort into doing something about that, then I don't get to complain about it. And I do have to kind of accept that right now that's how things are. That acceptance isn't easy, but it has gotten easier because I've worked this program. I have the tools now. 
I don't feel like a failure at life anymore when this happens. Like, okay, this is a thing that's occurring. We're going to overcome this. I'm going to move forward. I'm not going to give up. I know my worth. I know my value. I know the work that I've done. And I know that while, you know, everybody in my family and my, my friend group, everybody that knows me knows I'm a, you know, safe person to live around. It's going to take extra work and extra steps to prove it to other people. Um, I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but this is sort of applicable to everything that we just talked about. These kinds of things are always going to come up for me, and I feel equipped to be able to deal with them, whereas I did not before. And that occurs because I've worked this program as it was written, uh, just omitting the stuff that doesn't work for me, like the God stuff. So I hope that even though that section of the book was very, very reliant on the, the, the fact that you have to have this higher power in order to even do this stuff, that you're able to look past that and see that deep down the moral psychology, which I've mentioned before, this is where it's the most obvious. Write the stuff down. Look at it objectively. Be willing to share this stuff with somebody that you trust. Be willing to actually face this stuff and know that you'll survive it. Right now, you don't even have to do it. <laughs> Just be willing. Just be willing to start that process. Work your way towards doing. I, I guarantee you, if you're willing to do this, that, that some aspect of your life is going to improve. Maybe you go back out and drink and you have a hard time and you don't end up coming back all the way or whatever else happens. Something will improve from doing this. Just, just guaranteed, even if it's minor. So hopefully, again, hopefully you got something out of this. It's a little late, so my brain's kind of getting a little foggy, a little rough. Uh, I'll just say again, you can reach me at uh, Facebook at An Atheist Reads the Big Book of AA. You can reach me directly through email at oneatheistinaa at gmail.com. You can find me at Twitter at oneatheistin. And, uh, and I hope to have you back on the next episode. Thanks for listening.